Well, hello everyone and welcome back to Channel Talks, where today we're going to talk about partner success, which is an essential channel strategy and in some instances uh, not taken seriously enough. And that's what we're going to delve into today. We'll be looking at it through the lens of uh, all channel, including distributors and resellers, and trying to understand what some of the best practices of partner success are. And to do this, I have no better voice on this topic than Erit Ezips who is the uh, Chief Customer Officer, Founder, and also CEO at the CEM Practice. Uh, Erit is a world-renowned uh, renowned expert in customer retention and upsell strategies, which, of course, are probably two of the biggest topics going around at the executive suite at the moment, uh, if not the two most important. Uh, and, uh, and over that time has earned numerous awards, accolades, and recognition, including being over the last 10 years consistently in the top 10 customer success strategists and influences. Uh, Erit's also very generous with her time, and she uh, runs a podcast, uh, YouTube and podcast, which uh, with many, many episodes, which I've uh, indulged in, and around about 8,400 subscribers to that as well. So it's huge. Uh, she learned a trade in the field, which is also awesome. Um, and that was uh, right at the end of Gainsight. And of course, we've had Nick Metter, our friend on the channel. Uh, she, uh, did, uh, she was head of strategy and solutions uh, consulting there. Erit then left uh, Gainsight to form the first customer success consulting strategy firm in the world. And here we are. So welcome to the uh, to the channel, uh, Erit. Thanks. Uh, this is by far the most recent introduction I've ever had. Well, there you go. I hope I did, I hope I did, 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 did got, got that right. And of course, joining me is Kotfru, who is the founder and CEO of iasset.com, who actually implemented customer success tools and also put people into those roles over 13 years ago. So a veteran in customer success, in fact, uh, had a team of customer success representatives in the distributor we found, uh, distributioncentral.com, many, many, many years ago. Uh, so he's actually one of the most foremost voices on partner success and in keeping the channel relevant. So, Scotty, welcome. I'm pretty Thank excited. <laughs> this is going to be a great one. Uh, I'm going to lay out the scene um, for the discussion uh, with some facts, because facts don't really care about your feelings. And uh, my view is uh, I, I constantly get asked, at least daily, uh, why should tech vendors and, and manufacturers pay attention to partner success as a component of the customer success strategy and why this is important to all suppliers, manufacturers and vendors. So for a start, I'll give you my view, especially in North America, these distributors, uh, vendors, uh, sorry, distributors and partners, all kinds of partners, they're some of the largest companies in the world. To put it in perspective, uh, some of these or many of these are bigger than the likes of Nike, McDonald's, Coca-Cola. So they're very relevant. They're not going away. They're getting bigger and they're getting more important. So, Erit, please, why do you think partner success is so paramount now from your vast experience, just as an introduction? Yeah, you know, sometimes I do work with partners to develop their customer success program, yeah. and you could clearly see where they're struggling with right now with the transition to SaaS, and even just the world of business is changing. I mean, if we if the traditional approach was uh, let's build it and sell it, if we could build it and sell it, or just you know provide it, then customers will follow and the business will grow. And still, there's a lot of business to be made around that, but. We should all like the world is changing into we build it, we sell it, but then we want to make sure the customers don't just get the product or the solution. We actually need to make sure that they're getting business outcomes. And if you don't jump on that wagon, your competitors will. And so yeah. what partners are starting to see is that the early adopters of customer success from their competitive landscape uh, you know, have started to embrace that. Mm, they're, you know, whatever they're doing from a value proposition, their website looks different. They don't call their sales cycle a sales cycle. They're actually providing consultative selling. Um, so it's a con consulting service to evaluate the best solution. And then after the sale, they keep in touch and so if they there is another opportunity to expand the wallet share, they'll be the first to hear about it. It's a huge competitive advantage for those in that partner ecosystem to learn about customer success, embrace it as a company-wide initiative, and um, basically get into the 21st century way of doing business. 
Yeah, so important because you did touch on something that uh, is, is dear to all of us and that is uh, all that around. If, if you don't, someone else will, which is all about uh, customer retention, which is so important right now. Scotty, um, you, you, you've seen it from a, a local and regional distribution point of view, uh, knowing also that some of these organisations have been around so long, they actually control the culture in, an organ, in, a, in, a, in a market as well. So from that lens, how are you seeing the importance of, of customer success and why it's so relevant to vendors? Well, I've always had the position that uh, a lot of the vendors, the, the classic technology vendors have paid lip service to customer success and they're now banding it around but not actually fully engaged in it. <clears throat> Plus they have a, a challenge of they're separated by global distribution and the partner base. Um, so if you just assume for the moment that customer success is really all about adoption because if they don't adopt the product, they won't use it. You know, you'll never get any further business from that. It's up to the partners and the distribution base to ultimately um, support that adoption process because without adoption, as I said, you won't get increased renewals, you won't get increased expand sales or extend if you, you're partnering with other companies. Um, and in my world back when I had the distribution last distribution business, we were bleeding edge for customer success or partner success. Um, because we could see the writing on the wall, which was if you don't continue to support the product life cycles over the years that the product's deployed, you're never going to get uh, continuing business from that and then it's open for competitive attack, et cetera. So, you know, my role, which is why the platform came out as its own, was to wrap my arms around my partners to make sure they never missed an opportunity. And that's what the platform actually enables for those uh, partners that are using it. Yeah, and I, it reminds me, Scott, of when we had Nick Better on the on the platform, a good friend of ours, who was saying, you know, if, if customer success without partner success can't happen because there are so many channels to an end customer and who's running the prime contract, which I thought was quite profound and very strategic. Uh, and that was kind of back when we had uh, Jay McBain and also Alan Adeline. Make sure that you look at those uh, those those uh, interviews on the on the channel. Um, that you know, partners, if they're given the right automation tools and an emphasis on the automation tool side of it, they can de democratise what they call the new partner ecosystem. And uh, that, what was relevant there is that they don't need more portals. They actually need ecosystem tools because you know you don't want to go into a thousand portals. You only want to go into one, one maybe two, you know, portals to be able to to make those transactions. Otherwise, it doesn't become profitable. And according to uh, TSIA research as well, uh, this is just recent in November, already 67.5% of who they surveyed, the partners they surveyed, uh, are most likely to look for vendors that have customer success plans and also can give them uh, the customer success tools they need to achieve these. So the question to you guys, are you seeing a lot of this turned into action at the moment, or are we still talking about several bu buzzwords which we don't need and the kind of action you're seeing? You know, or are we collectively meeting the, the, the needs of the channel? I'm going to start with you. <laughs> I want to say I, I don't have like recent research data, but I can say back in 2019, Deloitte announced that there's like they did a, a benchmark uh, market global research and they found that only 63% of the companies back then indicated that they had some sort of a, you know, they had zero uh, partner success initiatives. So that they didn't have any processes. They didn't have any data points to share with partners. It was just basically like a black hole. On the other hand, like I actually have some clients that are in the, that are partners for multiple vendors, you know, just like the resellers. And they, they reported that, you know, their vendors don't really have any kind of proactive approach to working with them. So I think this is a very, very preliminary uh, stages of the partner success movement, per se. And um, the, the ones that are leading the charter are probably like companies like Cisco and VMware that made some investments in partner success and are doing very well. And those are even data-driven type of partnerships. So we can talk about kind of like un unfold that a little bit down the, the conversation. But yeah, I don't think it's a very mature uh, ecosystem right now. Yeah, it, it surprises me when, when I hear so many industry analysts and expert 
talk talk like that because ultimately the word success, when was it ever not about partner success? And is it because of an absence of tools or an absence of strategy? And that's where they're kind of coming from. Scott, uh, you've been doing this for too long to not have an opinion here. <laughs> well, let me put it this way. Um, and, and deploying an ecosystem for partner success so that it flows down the chain is not... Right forcing your channel through a portal type environment because they've already got 30 other portals they're supposed to log into every day. And of course, the reps are never selling anything if they're spending time on the portals, not including the fact they have to deal with their own internal systems and process to get you know business done. I think to give you an example of where it's a bit broken is the manufacturer, last manufacturer I spoke to, and I won't use names to protect the guilty, they developed a, a partner strategy um, tool effectively to roll out to the channel and I asked them how are the distributors going to interface to that and they said oh well we didn't actually put the distributors in that particular process so it's I think again it's you know where the center of the universe for IT is North America and they build some great tools for direct sort of business there but when you come to the rest of the globe and all the different cultures and ways of doing business and distribution and you know partners that do different things they don't consider the rest of the world as, uh, as as an ecosystem. They just think, well, if it's good for North America, we'll sell it to the rest of the other North Americas. It really needs to be done as a holistic global rollout. And uh, I think that's where they're challenged. I think the second part of it is, if you're going to be successful in any sort of ecosystem, you need to partner at a system level. So you don't need to give them a portal. What you need to do is interface to their systems. And we've had APIs for a thousand years and yet, you know, I still hear the term EDI banding around, which I think was from the 70s. So what you need to do is work with them so their people are only using their systems and the relevant data and information is being pushed up, whether it's quote or pause information, and pull down the transactional financial information the other way. That way, you know, if I'm a business owner, my reps are only working on my systems and they're only doing it once and then everything's pushed out to wherever it needs to go. Yeah, we will be uh, getting into the importance of data soon. But, um, uh, Eric, I just wanted to ask you, based on what Scott said, is that consistent with what you're seeing with uh, with your clients? No. I mean, if if a partner developed a partner success program, I mean, granted, if you have a few partners, uh, maybe that's one thing. But some of them have tens of thousands you know, of customers and, like, hundreds of partners. Like, there are big companies. And so how do you really manage the integration of all, all of the plethora of systems that they might have? You have to kind of like say, all right, this is where we're going to provide the data and then maybe you have some API codes that they can integrate it into their system. But I would say for the most part, a lot of them do start with a portal for their partner. Now, beyond the data that we'll talk about a little bit you know, down the road in this conversation, I think that some of the information that partners want can't really be integrated into systems. So I'll give you some examples. Um, you said at the beginning of the conversation that TSA found that most uh, resellers or right they want the part they want the vendor to provide the framework for what customer su success should look like for their business when they work with the vendor's clients. How are you going to provide that? The frameworks, the processes, the templates. You have to have a part a, a partner portal. And so I think the partner portal is a way to consolidate all that information, not just the telemetry. And I, that's why I kind of like and agree that it should be as, as much as possible integrated into the system. I think it's spot on, you know, the best optimal solution. But the reality is we are always going to have a partner portal for everything that the partner needs and then allow the partner to integrate the, the telemetry into their own system if they wish to do so. Yeah, we definitely are seeing that absolutely as a as a as an actuality rather than as a desire and as, as a desire. But uh, it always it always makes me wonder because you know we're living in a world where if you can digitize everything, digitize it. So every 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 company is becoming an IT company. Every coming company has a digital transformation company. So in order to move everything from on premises to cloud, and you know, is that a movement? Well, there's still a lot of technology you know, on, on premises and it's trying to move to cloud. And that's why SaaS is becoming really important. But our friends at Canalis tell me that 70%, they reckon that 70% of SaaS is still acquired outside of IT. Have partners lost faith in looking for alternative support, you know, from their vendors to, to, to go to market? 
I'd say, Who yeah, I, <laughs> I, I think the partners that I'm I'm talking to have kind of like, all right, we're not going to wait. We're actually going to do something about it because they're seeing unexpected churn. They have like a plethora of like challenges that they that arise with the rise of SaaS. Um, I think like, you know, they don't know exactly, you know, how can they scale the way they serve their customers, you know, in a digital manner, or they don't have the tools or the capacity to do that. I think, you know, if they had a partner success, that would be much easier for them. Um, they need to figure out their value prop. That's a huge opportunity for them to move from just a provider of a tool to a provider of a solution of a, a value value uh, added service versus, you know, let me just sell a solution. Let me evaluate what you need. And then after the sale, let me make sure that you are implementing what the outcomes that you wanted. So I think that's kind of like, what I'm seeing is like the first step that they're doing is changing their value prop, changing the way they're doing business, and then coming up with a value cycle management that's more proactive and even kind of doing an outreach to the partner. Hey, who who's the CSM on the partner side and creating that relationship and a cadence with them? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's that that's vital, essential. Scott, what do you see, man? Uh, look, I think on the uh, on the process side, I think that. Um, most of the reseller partners that we've seen out there are still struggling with a CSM practice in their own right. Mm -hmm. I think they're still being driven from top down and they need to basically get on the bandwagon and understand how that process works. And it's, I remember when we did it at uh, DC how many years ago, it was hadn't been done before a distribution. In fact, when I started calling my people customer success people, they went, what the hell is a customer success person? They didn't want it, yeah. <laughs> it was too American for them at the time, but... Really, um, they've got to push their people to evolve into new positions. So rather than um, trying to keep the old structures going, they need to innovate. They need to push it forward. And a lot of those, uh, especially principals, are so busy doing the business, they're not stepping back and looking back into the business to see how to innovate to the next level, which includes this customer success piece. Yeah, and, and uh, from from my lens, what I'm seeing in you know the many vendors that I talk to, and also uh, channel players, um, uh, many of the channel players, the distributors, and the um, and the resellers, especially the MSPs, uh, they absolutely want to practice channel uh, uh, partner success, uh, but they want to reduce churn, they want to reduce their costs, and they want to increase their revenue. But they're looking to the vendor to provide them with the program and the tools that will allow them to to to, to execute on that um i don't see a lot of that support it's almost like no it's the other way around uh, you do this so you go out and you get that you fund that on the on the on the celeb margin so there's almost like a mexican standoff in some of some in some of these negotiations which shouldn't should never happen so in saying that Okay, let's flip it, flip it over. You know, what would be your vendor's challenge today if they don't have a partner success program? What's going to happen? I'll hit, yeah. I'll hit you, Irit, first. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know... Um, what are they missing out on? Yeah, I think what, what we're seeing is that they're actually challenged with unexpected churn. Mm -hmm. And the reason is, is that they don't really have a clear way to understand what is happening with a the partner. They don't have telemetry of usage. They're, you know, they, they're working mm -hmm. blind. Um, they don't know what is the CSM from the vendor side is doing. So there's no real visibility. Yeah. You know, there's no synchronicity around how, what are we saying to customers? What are, what are the things and priorities that we push or recommend to customers? There's a little bit of a, about that. The vendor might be sending NPS score or other surveys um, to kind of gauge customer satisfaction. They don't have visibility to that. Um, so they don't know who their biggest attractors or promoters are if they don't have their own survey sent out. And what if there's like multiple ones that are, and then they don't have any signs of risk. So if there's a lack of adoption, they wouldn't even see it. If there's opportunity to increase features or modules. They don't have that. Um and they don't know if the customer is growing or not. There's no like any kind of, uh, I would say, early signals for either upsell or churn because of this uh, ambiguity. And some of these partners, granted, they're very large. They might have hundreds or thousands of customers that they serve with that vendor. 
And so they, they have data challenge in and of itself, but they have less resources than the vendor. So you have to ask yourself, why the heck isn't the vendor investing their time and their uh, resources to uh, provide visibility to those questions? Yeah. And, and Scott, I mean, what we're seeing as well, you know, to support what Eric is saying, uh, many vendors now are recognizing that their channel programs just aren't cutting it and they need to give a different channel programs and reward them in different ways in terms of, you know, reduction of churn, increase in upsell, increase in cross-sell, and that's where they're getting their, um, their rebates and their MDF from. There's, there's a new metric which says, I want you to do this and this is how I'm going to uh, support you and recognise you. Even though I don't have the tools at the moment, I still want to put you in that mindset and mind frame, which is encouraging. Um, what can what can, what can a a distributor and a, and, a, and, a, and a reseller or an MSP uh, do to fill that gap in the meantime until a vendor eventually catches up? Well, so Nick, as you've seen, Microsoft has done a dramatic shift in the way they manage their partner program away from the old sort of gold, platinum, whatever. So you are seeing companies starting to grapple with this kind of longer term sales process or customer life cycle, if you like. I think the biggest challenge for the resellers is, again, um, you might have five, 10 vendors in that customer side of the hundreds of thousands of customers. It's not just one vendor. And of course, vendors only care about their kit, not everybody else's, but everything works together. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I've always been an advocate of controlling your own business, controlling your own data. You know, the resellers got all the end user information. They've got all of the products that are supplied. If their distributors any good, they're provided serial numbers and contract start end dates and all of that physical information around the products the the resellers could take control of their own customer success and if they've got a whole bunch of uh, you know palo alto and they want to sell wildfire in which is an expand opportunity they can mine that base looking for those opportunities or if they've sold cisco and they want to sell NetApp, they can again mine those cross sales opportunities so as an entrepreneur myself i always want control of my own business rather than relying on the backstop of the vendor or distributor to sort of help me through that um, so that's the way I come at it, you know, to the to the partner portal piece here. It's absolutely right for that sort of soft skills and the dynamics of selling and supporting yeah. some of those businesses. Where we're coming from is really how do you automate that entire yeah. transactional process? And the mining of that data can't be done by humans or some, you know, random person on the other side of the planet for that business. Okay, yeah. So, so you're talking about best practice, which is which is fantastic. That's what I want to stay on um, uh, at the moment. So, Erin, what 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 best practices are you seeing with the channel in trying to engage in their own customer success uh, program through partner success? All right. So, like the actual resellers, what they, should they be doing, or what what do we see partners are doing for for the channel? Well, what the resellers are doing for themselves. For themselves, yeah. yeah. And distributors. Think, what are distributors? Yeah, are yeah absolutely. I, look, there's two types. I've worked with uh, with a few of them. So I could say it really depends on the maturity of their business. Um, so one of them that I worked with, actually what they've done is, a, first of all, assessed what is their maturity of customer success. I think a lot of people think, mistakenly think that customer success is to set up a customer success management team. Not necessarily so, because... Customer success is really a company-wide imperative or initiative, if you will. So you have to look at how are we doing, you know, do we do welcome and onboarding for customers? How does that look like? Is it aligned with best practices? Do we have anything after the company signs up and when goes goes live, if it's like a SaaS or on-prem software that we're reselling? Um, what happens in between? What is what is our value activities that we do in between renewals or not? Do we have access? Do we have a proper access to data and a proper renewal process? Like all of these questions you have to ask yourself and really take inventory. What is your maturity level currently as a business? And then take stock and look at how do you compare against your competitors within your industry and market? I think once you, you, you understood that, you, you want to kind of start developing your value prop and look at your own clients as partners versus just some somebody you sell something into and then occasionally reach out when you think there's an opportunity. That's the main difference between the traditional and the proactive customer success right. approach. That and is then, so important. That's so profound. That is so spot on. 
um, and and seeing it. You know, you mentioned uh, the success indicators, and I will want to touch that in a second. But um, I wanted to ask you guys, uh, regardless of tools, it's important. I think it's important that um, you have a strategy, adopt a strategy. I mean, we talk about LIPS, Land, Invest, Protect and Surrender, which is what you do once you make a sale. You go out there and mine your data to be able to uh, make sure that you get the subscriptions up, which is an upsell. Um, make sure that you uh, work in reference architecture world in an ecosystem so you can actually sell multiple you know, uh, technologies to a customer to make them successful both. And, of course, what you do with the renewals to make them very successful so that the, the, the technology that they've bought doesn't, get, doesn't become redundant or dormant very quickly. And, of course, what you do at the end of life, you know, uh, you know what, what are you going to replace it with? And, and that strategy is all about being proactive and being able to come and talk to your ultimate customer to talk to them about how you're going to make them successful proactively by knowing what knowing what they need and telling them what they need so you're always ahead of it. Um, and then you execute. Am, am I... Am I on the mark? Am I, am I right? What, what are you guys seeing? Is how how far away are we from why I believe that to be the ultimate? Yeah, basically, there's three three phases in that. You know, setting up a strategy for customer success. If I'm a partner, one, I assess where I am and where are their gaps. Two, I implement and and put it together. And I think the best way to do it is like creating a customer journey life cycle. That's really redefining what our value activities with customers versus just tech support or whatever. And then three, how do I scale that? And I think there's like different elements to scaling that program. So you could do it with more customers versus just your, you know, top and uh, top 20% that brings you 80% of your revenues. Mm, yeah. Scott, what do you? Well, I think um, uh, to Eric's point, they are all focused at the top end of town, but how do you bring some of those practices down in an automated fashion so that you can address a larger number of mid or even lower end customers? You know, I always argue with uh, manufacturers who so distributors that forget about that $200 antivirus renewal that they've missed because they don't, you know, 6% margin is not worth picking up the phone. That could lead into something else because you've missed that entire customer piece. Everyone wants the renewal. It's just, you've got to do it in a more automated fashion. So mm -hmm. taking some of what Eric's talking about are those top-end customers and then pushing it down so that it works in a more automated fashion so you can address a lot more of your customer base without having direct touch on every point. I think that the whole product life cycle, customer life cycle piece is very important from the point of view. Is And Jack from TSIA said to me one day, I can't remember the number, but if you don't do an expand sale through the first revenue cycle, there's like 30% of those renewals will disappear on you because you've lost that contact with the customer because all you're doing is sitting waiting for that 12-month anniversary to ring the customer and say, you know, you owe us a renewal. So you've got to think about, you know, with consumption economics and cloud and, and, and subscription type metrics, you want to be in there in the customer's face in some fashion, automated or by person, every month, quarter or whatever is appropriate for your relationship, not just set, drop, sell, and go, and then call them when something happens at your end rather than their end. Okay, so I mean, you both talked about you know best practice, um, and 100% agree with both of you. I've, I learned a bit there, which was wonderful. But um, can you give me success indicators? What success indicators would they be looking for? which is ultra important because you've got to measure this at the end of the day. Um, you live in that world, so I'm going to start with you. Yeah, I'd like to think about success indicators, like three types of success indicators. One, is my team actually adopting the new policies and processes that I set up? And it, this is going to include not just a customer success team if they choose to create one, but also does my sales team embrace this value activities? That's number one. And are they playing nice together? Um then if they are doing the activities that we set up to do in our new value lifecycle um, journey, uh, am I seeing some leading results, early signs of results? Uh, because there's a business impact, which is obviously very important, but I also want to see that customer satisfaction is going up, engagement is going up, product adoption is going up. Like VMware, when they actually created a customer health score, looked at different scorecard uh, to measure the customer health. Um, and so in that, you know, you had like different things like, okay, is the, when is the next renewal date? Is the, how many of them do we think are going to renew? 
um are are we are we going growing the the you know the shared wallet for each customer all of these things are actually impacting the business itself um mm -hmm. so you kind of want to see an increased engagement but also you know having affect the bottom line so three the company impact the actual business impact that would be the renewal all of these things uh but also um a preliminary impact on the business results as well Right, yeah, spot on, absolutely, and I love the the new uh, value life cycle journey. <laughs> I'm going to steal that; it's going to be mine. Um, but um, if, with your permission, of course. Uh, Scott, <laughs> you you, me you measure all this stuff, Scott. You measure it all. Um, what are you seeing are the most in demand indicators that matter to someone who's you know executing on 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 the platform? That's hard, Nick. We've got. 20 off the top of my head indicators that different types of organisation use. You know, we've got people that sell mining equipment. We've got people that sell software. We've got cloud consumption. We've, they're all different indicators. Um, my personal one's always been, what's my current attachment rate for that customer? So if it's cloud, how many, is their consumption generally tracking up? You know, is, is something falling off a cliff somewhere? Um, you know, we run some very large cloud, uh, North American cloud operations, and it's all about watching the numbers each month and then alerting using our AI to alert when suddenly zero or, you know, it's gone up a lot. They, they're looking for anomalies in that data. Right. In the classic, you know, router switch hardware business where it's a, attaching uh, maintenance, it's all about, to me, it's all about how many of those products in the field are currently covered by maintenance. Like we can get into all sorts of challenging conversations and people are a lot smarter than me about renewal rates and in quarter and out of quarter and all that sort of stuff. But really, of the 100% of products I have in the field, how many are currently covered? That's, mm. I mean, that's the easiest way to do it. And then you get into software subscriptions and software subscriptions are usually pretty boring. They're three-year contracts. There's not a lot of movement inside them, but it's making sure you hit them up uh, on a regular basis to make sure adoption is happening, which is where your customer success is coming out of that piece. So that's, I mean, that's a brief view of 20-odd indicators that run sure. inside the platform for different sure. customers. Sure. You remind me of when uh, Jack was on the program from TSIA who was saying that if you uh, have a good uh, upsell rate, you'll yes. almost guarantee a good renewal rate, which right. almost guarantees uh, minimum uh, customer churn, yeah. which is uh, which was a great way. And I think you were talking to that. Um, and well, I think, Nick, the, the, the really interesting point is if you get your data, and it doesn't matter if you're a partner or a distributor or a vendor, if you get this holistic data view over uh, or under whatever platform, you can predict the events that are happening just like the minority board ahead of time. We can, where we've got customer data over a number of years, we can predict a renewal rate in a, by country, by vendor, by customer, by partner, because you're looking at all the historic data of the actions that has taken before that event. And mm -hmm. then you can present to, you know, the user, here's the biggest deal that's under threat right now, based on all of those parameters that are running in the history. Yeah. Uh, you know, Nick, if, if we're talking about renewal predictions and uh, sort of like securing the renewal and increasing renewal rates, there's one thing that I see a lot of companies, not just resellers and uh, MSPs and uh, distributors, but a lot of different companies that actually embrace customer success that are not doing enough. And that really is a very strong indicator that they have some control over. Do you know yeah. what it is? Tell me. It's really managing advocacy proactively. A customer that advocates for you, yeah. not only will uh, are they more, they have more propensity to renewal but they'll also have the propensity to upsell. And it's kind of like, you know, if I say that you're great and I put it out there, I'm already loyal to you. It yeah. actually enhances the loyalty. The number one mistake that most businesses make in general is they don't manage advocacy proactively. And I think if I was a business owner, a reseller, and I were to set up a customer success program, one of the first things that I would do as part of that initiative is make sure that I have somebody accountable to detect, find, and nurture a pipeline for increase in advocacy, because that would make my whole business much more healthier. Yeah, yeah I couldn't agree Absolutely. more. That's, that's, that's essential. And then you can't call yourself a consultant if you don't do that. <laughs> if you don't have that, you're essentially a traditional old just 
procurement company, right? right. Um, and that makes a massive difference. And you've really um, eloquently explained the most important, as far as I'm concerned, element in doing this. Because uh, I always say, if, if you can't use your tools to create unsolicited proposals, to advocate to your customer that this is where your business needs to go based on the technology that you've bought, you're really just in procurement. You're not really doing anything else in your second or third quote. And we see that more and more, which is a shame, but but we are. But, okay, on that, um, we've played around with a lot of very important strategic concepts and importance and almost like threats. But um, very open question, but it's something that both of you have done a lot of, so I want my, my viewers to understand it. How should one approach starting a, a partner success uh, program if they if they haven't yet what what are, what what are the early things they need to be doing the one two threes that they must be doing first this is where again if I'm a vendor if I'm a like a a, a channel uh, partner if you're a channel partner and also later if you're a vendor I want to I want to know about both <laughs> <laughs> no pressure yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Okay, if I'm a reseller. You're the best in the world at this. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I would take different steps, honestly. Like if I'm a partner, the first step that I was going to do is pick a few partners, probably all of my, 100%, all of my key partners, but then make sure I have enough partners that I talk to that are from different industries, regions, potentially, or sizes to understand, hey, if I were to invest in a partner success program, what do you guys need? What do you want? What would be the best way to communicate? What data do you need? What data would you be willing to share? Like all these questions, I think, are really important um, to just align on what should the partnership look like and the partner success program look like. I think that's like step number one. Step number two, I would start like with the, the simple things that really would help my partners the most based on this discovery. So most Look, most partner success programs start actually with some preliminary data sharing. Um, Cisco, when they launched theirs, and I have the video with um, uh, the person that was leading that initiative for many years, uh, the first thing that they found is that the partners didn't even know when was the renewal day. They had so many contracts with so many customers, they just don't know, right? And so they would miss the, the renewal, the renewal date, and then the renewal was either late or just like by that time they the customer went somewhere else. And so the first thing that they shared with their, part, with their uh, resellers is, all right, here's the renewal date and here's a notification that the renewal is coming so that you, partner, don't forget to work with your customer on a proactive manner, just as simple as that. Um, and I think that they doubled down on that data more and more, including tracking the relationship, like what are the significant relationship with each account, uh, getting permission from the partner to actually nurture them through digital engagement to create, um, you know, a need or awareness to new features, modules, services that they can offer, all those kind of things. So I think if I'm a partner, that's the route I'm going I'm to start with. And by the way, I'm probably going to start with one region. And I'm specifically saying that because I, I think um, I think it was Scott that said at the beginning of the conversation, hey, do it globally, right? Start regionally, <laughs> have su have success, learn from that experience, mature your program, define, you know, roles and responsibility, who's enforced, uh, how are you going to recruit more partners? And then when you branch out to international regions, really figure out, do you need to localize this? Um, do you need people on the ground? Like, what would be the best way? And then gradually do that. I think it's easier with data sharing, but if you are actually going to have a portal that teaches your uh, resellers how to do customer success, you probably need to think about a little bit more about the considerations um, as to what the partner success program and the portal would would include. And then really decide whether your success metrics, right? It, usually when you launch a partner success program as a vendor, you want to know how many partners signed up. Are we seeing business impact in those, like, is the wallet share going up? Is expansion selling? Are they retaining more customers? Are they getting new customers faster? All of those things. So I think as a partner success, as a vendor, that's what I would do. I, I, I have to agree with every bit of that. And that's going to become, become a very important part of how we present this part of Channel Talks to our, to our uh, audience because it's an um, incredible blueprint. Scott, I'm going to throw to you. 
you must agree with all that because that must be music to your ears. I do, but How I'm do going to pull you? Out, How I, do you I do, execute? I do, but I'm going to pull apart the globalization piece just to give you an example of where it falls apart. So um, Australia is about the size of the continental United States in, as far as the landmass is concerned. And there are a lot of Americans that come into IT business that think, well, Australia is that big and US is that big, so the market's about that big. And they develop partner programs and customer success programs that are based on financial targets of a country that's as only in population as big as New York on a good day. So okay. that's what I'm thinking about. You know, it's I'm not suggesting that you don't do it in one region and then replicate it out, but you really have to dig deeper into those regions before you migrate those programs. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think, um, you know, really if if you're a North American company and half of your sales are coming from the rest of the world or wherever they are, you've really got to take that in your in your stride. And that may be, you know, your client advisory board, which is really what your point one is, um, that's when you should go out to the globe. And so you could still build in a single region, but you've already got the feedback from all of those other areas and you can then, um, you know, compartmentalise some of the programs so it works in some places, but maybe you don't put those modules in other places. So that was my point on globalisation rather than, you know, I like the McDonald's model, which is build the perfect burger and then push it out everywhere. Yeah. Just think about the rest of the world. <laughs> I yeah. agree. I, I totally agree with you, Scott, by the way. That's that's exactly what I'm in, and I think yeah. that's a very thoughtful uh, approach. Yeah, what's what's really interesting, though, guys, is um, when when – when I look at this being implemented from you, um, the first question uh, we ask is, what's your biggest problem? So I can go off and solve that. And it tends to be regional. It tends to be regional. And, it, you know, even though they've got it across the board, there is a region that has the problem worse than anywhere else, and they need to solve that first. So it always tends to become regional. And the, and the, the proof of concept or the pilot tends to be regional, which... Uh, talks exactly to what you're both talking about. It's absolutely true. Look, I was I was going to finish with this, but I'm not going to finish with this. I'm going to finish with something else because <laughs> we've been playing with, we've been, and I am conscious of time, but we've been playing with data uh, and we've been talking about data. And I want to talk about data because um, I'm, I'm sick and tired of hearing two things. I'm sick and tired of hearing people go, data is the new oil. Uh, well, it's not unless you mine it. So it's <laughs> data is nothing unless you do something with it. Um, and the second thing is uh, our data is bad. There's no such thing as bad data. It was just it was just collected for a different purpose and it needs to be reorganised so it can be mined. It's the same data, just needs to be reorganised so it can be mined. Um, my question to you guys, uh, having said that, is am I right or am I wrong? Um, but more importantly, you know, how can data better be used? What are your what are you both seeing in how data can better be used? And also what kind of data should be shared to be better used? Mm. Big question, uh, but, so, but well, Nick, I always say both got big brains. I, I modify your statement to say, or the statement that uh, data is oil is data is crude oil. You need something to filter through uh, diesel, petroleum. Uh, gas, all of the components, all of the lubricants, the oils, everything, they all come from the same source, plastics. So it depends on the organisation that's got the crude oil as to what they actually want to mine out of it. And, you know, in our world at iAsset, we're all about install-based mining and making sure you're efficiently hitting every customer and every opportunity you can before your competitor gets in there. So making that crude oil work for you for whatever that component is, expand, extend, renewal, end of life. So that's the way I see it. I mean, I'm really I'm probably the other end of the spectrum to irritate it's more at that front end of the business where, at the, you know, we are in the steam engine at the back, you know, or mining that, uh, that oil and trying to make sure it's efficient for every one of those customers. But my advice to any entrepreneur or owner of a business is you need control of your crude oil, not rely on someone else to provide you the crude oil because you'll end up with an oil crisis like in Australia during COVID, our strategic oil reserves are in North America. Well, that's not going to be very good when you can't ship it. <laughs> can't share it. <laughs> when you can't share it. So it, to, to, to pull that metaphor a little bit further, um, I think what you're saying, correct me if I'm wrong, is... Uh, if you've got data, rearrange it so that you can use it proactively rather than just sit on it. And that proactive should be those proposals that you take to your customer to say, this is what you've done, this is what you've bought, this is what you have, this is how to better use it, better utilise it, 
This is how to get success with the investment. This is how to get a better return on investment by using that refined data and turning into something that's more uh, more than just the data. Um, I can't wait to hear what you're going to say. <laughs> I'm I, say I know it's things. a big thing for you. <laughs> no, two things. First of all, absolutely agree. Um, you know, if you don't date, you have the data. Sometimes you don't see the forest from the bushes. Really, um, I remember when I was. Um, when I was giving birth uh, to my second child, active labor, you're like, uh, you're like in pain. I remember I was wheeled into the labor room because I was like ready, right? And so I, as soon as I got to the room, I lifted up the, the, the chair. I was like starting to push. And the nurse said, don't push, don't push. I was like, I'm pushing. This child is coming right now. She's like, don't push. I was like, it's coming. And she says, don't push. I need to take your pants down first. <laughs> you know and i think a lot of businesses are like you know they're like going yeah. and they don't see they don't know what's going on what works what doesn't you know somebody but when you come in with a data and you present a dashboard all of a sudden you see what's really going on and that's that's the the magic of really not just collecting the data but having the process to diligently analyze it look at what's going on what works what doesn't what needs to change that's one Secondly, if a business wants to scale their customer success program or their partner success program, they can do that efficiently without data. So there's about six initiatives that I can think about that it would be data driven. One, you can have a digital journey that is just in time versus just like, oh, here's your weekly newsletter about something yeah. related to our business and nobody cares. Right. So yeah. that's one. Secondly is self-serve communities. If you know, uh, you know, you have the community and you can actually create notifications based on data or allure people into the community about topics that they're interested in, data is going to serve you very, very well. Um, renewal and growth notifications. I can use the data to know if there's a risk, if there's a renewal coming or if there's an opportunity for upsell. Um, and I can completely auto renew them too if I have all yep. the data in place. Um, and I can provide scalable support. I had one um, company that interviewed for my YouTube channel. Um, anybody that wants to learn more about customer success is invited to, to, to watch or subscribe, CSM Practice. Um, and what they said is that they actually took the data from their support ticket and find recurring issues that they could harvest through the log of the systems and then create a support ticket automatically with the su suggested solution when a certain error was coming up because it was that frequent and it was wasting their support team's time. Um, so, you know, and the sixth one is probably just all kinds of automated transactions that we can help our customers just facilitate the way that we're doing business with them. So those are six things that we can do um, more automatedly and in a smart way, just in time, uh, if we do have the data. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Scott, any more to add to that? Uh, no, I agree entirely. And if you don't have control or your arms around your own data, you will fail. And especially in today's market with consumption economics, because it's all driven by data. There's, there's not one part of a consumption contract that isn't data based. I think uh, to, to push the analogy about oil a bit further, uh, you may not know that diesel and petrol and these sort of products go off over time. Data goes off over time. Mm. So what you need to do is be engaged with it. So yes, it's fine to have the data, but you need to be constantly stirring the data to make sure it stays relevant and current. And only through that, um, you know, pushing your teams to actually engage with the data means that the data will always stay current. Yeah, and, and all right, I'm, you guys have been incredibly generous with your time, but I do have one more question, if I may, because it's just too important to me right now based on what you guys are saying, because, uh, saying because uh, and, and I really thank you both. Uh, this has been amazing, uh, and our viewers are going to love this, but um, you, you've been talking about what needs to be done. You're talking about what can be done. You've been talking about what is being done. Um, where is the C-suite? in all of this, because it's my view that if the C-suite was more involved in uh, customer success or owning customer success and owning partner success, it would be ubiquitous now because it's just too obvious a strategy. And you don't have to be diplomatic. 
I have a very uh, a very um, narrow preview to something sometimes because of my position as a consultant or a strategy consultant. And I can only speak from my experience that when a company decides to embrace customer success and they're an MSP, a distributor or a reseller, you know who reaches out to me is the CEO or the COO. That's it. Yeah. I've never had a head of customer success. They don't have a head of customer success probably. And even if they did, at the point that they reach out, they probably don't have a lot of teeth into the process. It's probably not as mature. And the CEO and the COO already know that this is a game changer for them. And if they don't, it's probably not the right time or they're on their way like to yeah. you know sunset the business and they don't yeah. even know it. <laughs> I, agree. I couldn't agree more. What you just said then is exactly what I see, exactly what I see. And um, I just want to add to that before I get to your, your view, Scott, that uh, for a lot of them, they are actually sunsetting. And what that means is, I've got another few years left here and my shares and blah, 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 and I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to put anything in that might just shake things up. And it's a it's, cash it's, cow. They exactly. got these payments coming in again and again. And so they're like, why do I need to change anything? Yeah. Well, yeah. if you really look carefully at your data, you'll see that your on-prem accounts are actually have, you have less and less of that. And yeah. so, and your SaaS com customers need something else. Yeah. And so if you don't, you know, don't change anything. What's going to happen? Yeah, and the proof of that is someone else has more and more of them. Exactly. Yeah. Scott, what's your view there? Uh, well, to be a bit controversial, I see guys that are my age and older that have come up through the IT for the last 40 years and they're struggling with it. They are struggling with it. And, and to that point, over the last 40 years, you've had a head of channels, as an example. And if you look at the C-suite or the boardroom table, you've got the CEO who's the most important guy, you've got the CFO who's usually number two, the COO, and then, then the CRO and whatever, you know, trendy names they have. And down the end of the table is the channels person. And they have no say in anything because the CRO owns the sales number. I've seen now this escalation where they've put in SVPs for ecosystems. But what concerns me is they're older guys like us that have got the same experience that we've had for the last 40 years. And really, you need to inject some of the younger people that are coming out of different environments to actually help them with a proper customer success practice. Yes, there's always going to be a channel and you're always going to need guys like us. But to do CSM through a channel is a completely different challenge to what we've been used to over the last number of years. And to do that with uh, consumption economics, which means the deal is at risk every month rather than once every three years, absolute game changer. And I have seen there are older IT companies we've spoken to that are absolutely not changing because they don't want to touch anything. It's, you know, it's making money for them at the moment but they are, you can see them, you don't hear their names as much anymore. You just, you can hear them dropping away, basically. Yeah. Oh man, you two are incredible. I, I wish I could just keep going. This has been amazing here. It's got um, a masterclass. Thanks so much for, your, for, for being so honest and giving so much away. I really, really do appreciate it. Um, we will put uh, all the contact details in the show notes and also your channel so that people can learn more and get a lot more out of it. And I do advise that people do look at that. I've learned so much uh, from it, uh, Scott. Um, the iAsset stuff, of course, there's the execution of everything that we've uh, spoken about. Um, thank you very much, everyone, for joining us. Thank you again, uh, Irit and Scott. It's been a wonderful hour. Um, and we'll see you all next time. Thanks so much. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Eric. Thanks.